Hello and welcome to Impress. I'm Emma Cooper. Today we continue our search for dark matter with Dr Paul Scoville. Part 1 explained that there is a lot of evidence to support the existence of dark matter, in some form or another. But we can't see it, which makes looking for it that much trickier. So the hunt is on, and the topic of today's podcast is, how do you actually search for dark matter? If you don't know a lot about dark matter and haven't listened to the first part of this special edition, I really recommend that you do. There's a lot of background theory covered and it will make understanding part two much, much easier. Let's kick things off with the obvious question. How do you search for something that you can't see? Okay, so uh, there are three methods. Three mm-hmm. methods you can search for dark matter. Mm-hmm. There's indir- indirect detection, there's direct detection, and there's production. So indirect detection works on the principle that dark matter may interact with itself. So for every standard model particle we have, electrons, uh, neutrons, protons, there are antiparticles as well. So there's positrons, for example. So a positron is the antiparticle of an electron. And you come across that in normal life through positron emission tomography. So you have a positron that's emitted in a, in a nuclear reaction. It travels a very small distance and then it meets an electron. And when the positron meets the electron, they annihilate each other and release energy. And that's released as two gamma rays, which can be detected by your PET scanner. Well, every other particle also has an antiparticle. There's antineutrinos, antineutrons, antiprotons, um, and so on. So this theory states that if there's dark matter, why not anti-dark matter? And it goes even further to say that dark matter could in fact be its own antiparticle. So if a dark matter particle interacts with a dark matter particle, it's going to annihilate and emit energy. Now, in terms of indirect searches, what you do is you look for somewhere where there's a high density. And somewhere like the centre of a galaxy would be a, a good example of, of a region of high density. So what you do is you, you take your, your telescope that's sensitive to gamma rays or positrons and you point at the centre of the galaxy and you say, right, I know what I'm expecting to see here. What do I see? Do I see an excess? If you see more than that, then that's a hint that maybe you're seeing something like a dark matter interacting with dark matter, annihilating and giving you photons. The only problem is, with that method of detecting dark matter, is that you're susceptible to other forms of these excesses. So something something like a pulsar, so a very fast-spinning star that emits gamma rays in all sorts of directions, could interfere with your signal and make you think, oh, I've seen a, an excess. They're fantastic experiments. There are many more of them coming online and very novel ways of, of detecting dark matter to avoid the problem of, of backgrounds. But they are there. So it's you, you can see tantalising hints maybe of dark matter. Nothing's been detected through indirect detection yet. There's also collider production. So this was going back to CERN and the LHC and supersymmetry. So what they have at CERN is a huge accelerating ring and they're firing protons against protons in opposite directions. When they smash together, what you get is a huge release of energy and that energy can be released as, as other particles or more fundamental particles than the, the ones that are accelerated together. And the job of the scientists at CERN and around the world who are working on the LHC project is to look at what they detect or the point of collision. And they have to sort of sift through and find out all the information to build back to the very centre. Conservation of mass and energy suggests that what comes out has to equal what goes in. If supersymmetrical particles are produced at the LHC, they're not going to interact in the detectors. 
So when you do your sums and you build back to the centre, sort of the point of collision, it's not going to add up. You know what's come in and what's come out is different, is less. So it's it's called looking for missing mass, basically. So this supersymmetrical particle's been produced and disappeared off into wherever, and your calculations don't work, and, and you've potentially discovered dark matter. And now for what Paul does. What I work on is direct detection of dark matter, and that's designed to detect the dark matter as it passes through us, so the, the dark matter that surrounds our galaxy, that surrounds us. Now, I've already said that it's very difficult to detect. It doesn't interact very well. In direct detection, we're relying on the fact, on the, on the hope, that dark matter does interact with normal matter, albeit very, very weakly. If it doesn't interact with normal matter at all, then we aren't going to detect it, basically. But it should. So all the, the theories of WIMP dark matter suggest that it should interact, because it's weakly interacting, otherwise it would be called NIMPs, non-interacting massive particles. So we work on the premise that if you, if you build a large enough detector, a sensitive enough detector, leave it long enough in a quiet enough environment, every now and again, one of these WIMPs might come in, recoil off one of the nuclei in your detector, and when it recoils off the nuclei, it imparts a small amount of energy, which is then emitted as light in your detector, and you look for these pings of light. Um, basically, what we have looking for the light is these photomultiplier tubes that are reverse light bulbs, almost. So in a light bulb, you produce electrons which cause the, the gas in there to, to glow. In photomultiplier tubes, a photon hits your photomultiplier tube, and it's got some very loosely bound electrons in there, which then just get fired through your photomultiplier tube, multiplied and multiplied until you get a nice big signal that corresponds to a, a flash of light in your detector. Okay, so we know it should exist. We know how to look for it and Paul's method of choice. So when looking for dark matter directly, what makes a good hunting ground? For direct detection of dark matter, the mm. best place to hunt is somewhere where you're far away from the Earth's surface. Uh, and the reason for that is, is muons. As you're sitting on the Earth's surface, we're surrounded by the atmosphere, which protect us from radiation in space, cosmic rays. But cosmic rays will fly through space and they'll hit our upper atmosphere and they'll interact there and produce a huge cascade of particles including something called a muon. So we have electrons and positrons we've talked about. They're known as leptons, and they were produced very early on in the, in the early universe. But at the same time, there's something called a muon, which is also a lepton produced. They're produced in the upper atmosphere, and they've got a huge amount of energy, and there's a lot of cosmic rays hitting the upper atmosphere. So there's a lot of these muons produced. If you are sitting on the Earth's surface, I think you get about one per second per finger passing through you, you know, and, and we're talking about a, a very, very rare interaction that we're looking for with dark matter. In terms of scale, at the sensitivity we've reached at the moment, you're looking at, at less than one event per 300 kilograms of detector per year. Okay, that's a, big, a relatively big detector with one event per year versus one event per second per 10 grams of right. a finger, something like that. So you have to get as far away from yeah. these very common so they're, they're as possible. A complete pain. So it, that basically says that you can't run a dark matter detector on the Earth's surface. Mm -hmm. So we go underground. And we can go underground in two ways. You can either go down a mine, so you drill down into the Earth, or you can go into a mountain, so through a, a tunnel. And there are laboratories in both both kinds of places but where I've uh, been involved is with the Bulby laboratory mm -hmm. up in the northeast of England which is a mine they mine potash 
when you get down to somewhere like the level of Bulba, you go from one per second per finger to one per meter squared per day. You know, all of a sudden you've got a much lower number of muons, and that's simply because they interact in the Earth's crust. In all the rock above your head, they interact and they deposit their energy and they disappear. So the best place to hunt for dark matter is underground. Yes. So go mining for dark matter. Mining for dark matter. Awesome. So once you've you've got to the point where you've removed the muons, you also have to start to think about what's surrounding your detector. So in all materials, there are trace amounts of uranium and thorium, potassium, all things that are radioactive. Not anything that in our normal life we'd ever care about. But when you're talking again about less than one event per 350 kilograms per year, all of a sudden these trace amounts of uranium and thorium emitting neutrons, emitting alphas and emitting gamma rays, all of a sudden become a problem. So you also have to build your detectors out of very clean materials. You have to surround your detector with, with shielding. So you surround it with lead. Lead is very good at keeping gamma rays out. Or water. Water is very good at keeping um, radiation out. And you also uh, want to build your detector from a very clean material. And what we use uh, in our detector is liquid xenon. So liquid xenon is quite a, a dense material. It's about three times the density of water. So you get a lot of mass in a smaller area than if you had just water. And we work on the principle that the more mass you have, the more likely you are to see an interaction. Or unfortunately, as you know, you build up more mass and you don't see any interactions, your probability is, is rapidly falling away. So you have to build bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger detectors. Bulby has no more xenon detectors there anymore. So that was between about 2001 and 2012. They had the Zeppelin experiments there, which were liquid xenon detectors. And what you do to keep the funding agencies happy is you don't say, right, I'm going to build a 50-ton detector and I'm going to build it starting next week. What they'd like you to do and what's sensible to do is to start small and prove that the technology works and slowly scale up. So in, in uh, at Bulby there was the first Zeppelin experiment, which was only a few kilograms of xenon. It, it didn't detect that matter, but it told us above what probability we didn't need to look anymore and what range of masses of WIMPs we didn't need to look at anymore. And then you have Zeppelin 2 and Zeppelin 3, which were larger detectors, which were more sensitive, so you have more mass. All, all other things being equal, the mass is the important thing. More mass, so more chance of an interaction. Didn't see that matter. Okay, so that said that we needed to move to something bigger. So at that point, I moved away from Bulby Mine, uh, and we moved to an abandoned gold mine in South Dakota called Homestake. And that's where the current best, most sensitive um, liquid xenon detector is running at the moment. And that's got 350 kilograms. Cool. And the fact that I say it's less than one event per year per 350 kilograms suggests that that detector has run for a year and not seen anything. <laughs> so that's, that's set our current limit on probability of interaction for, for dark matter. That detector's just finished and is just being removed from the mine now. And the next detector that's going to go in is going to be seven and a half tons. Wow. So it's a, a big step up. And that's we're in the process of constructing that now. Parts of it are being built in Italy, parts of it are being built here in the university. Other parts are being built in the US and shipped to this one mine in Homestake where it's going to sit in a few years and, and, and hopefully detect that matter. So you haven't discovered dark matter yet, yes, but no. we're getting better ways of trying to find it. We're getting very good at not discovering it. <laughs> <laughs> With all of that in mind, what's the most exciting finding in your field of research that's come about to date? Oh, blimey. Yeah, I think the, the most interesting 
thing that we've discovered thus far is is that we've not discovered anything almost it's it's we're starting to get very 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 incredibly sensitive detectors i mean radioactively speaking the center center of the, the current generation detectors you could say is this the quietest place in the universe nothing happens in there um <laughs> which is very unusual for for everywhere else yet we still haven't seen this this elusive particle they've been running the lhc looking for hints of supersymmetry and they've still seen nothing this particle if it does exist and we still hope it does there's still a, a huge amount of space to look um so we, we, won't, we won't give up but the fact that it's it's eluded us even to this point is is interesting in itself yeah we're entering quite an interesting phase in the hunt yeah. for dark matter we are i'd say i'd say that in terms of direct dark, dark matter detection there comes a problem eventually with with these detectors when you make them more and more sensitive all of a sudden, they become sensitive to other things. So our sun is powered by uh, nuclear reactions, and as part of that, it emits neutrinos. And at the moment, our detector isn't sensitive enough to have a neutrino come in, interact with the nucleus, uh, and give us some light. But pretty soon, they're going to get big enough. I mean, in the next 20 to 30 years, they're going to get big enough that they will start having these interactions. And at that point, it's going to become very difficult to see any dark matter interactions beyond the, the, the interactions from the neutrinos. They're going to come in and they're going to swamp it. And there'll be no way of distinguishing between what's being caused by a neutrino and what's being caused by a, a wimp. And we can't turn the sun off. And we can't go even deeper to get away from them. These things just will just be there. But yes, my, my most interesting thing is probably the fact that we just haven't Help seen them. it yet. And we've been looking for a long time. That was Dr. Paul Scovel. He's written a blog for us about this work, and you can find the link to his blog and posts from other episodes in the description. You can listen to Impress on our website, impress.moonfruit.com, SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates, and let us know what you think. This episode was produced by Emma Cooper and Rihanna Guzzi. Our theme music is Blanks by Poddington Bear. Luca Morrill has drawn an illustration which is this week's episode art. Link to her work and the illustration in the episode description. This is the InPress podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.